0: News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you. The show, formerly known as Eye on Health, but the name is a little bit different, but the cast remains the same. We've got Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care and Nicole Bruno with Transitions Guiding Lights are our, our all star cast as always here to to anchor the team here as I muddle my way through this hour. I
1: fear you may have oversold us. <laughs> I don't
2: know. I think we're pretty good. Okay.
0: <laughs> Nicole knows. She knows. She knows. She yeah, knows. Guys are I'm great. the
2: barometer of perfection. You know. <laughs> oh, <my goodness.
0: laughs> oh, oh, Nicole. <laughs> Uh, well, we're uh, we've got a, a great show lined up today, and you know we we tend to talk about um, issues that affect caregivers, and there's probably none more serious
1: and more well known than that of cancer, Cooper. Absolutely, we. Uh, in fact, we you know we used to call that the big C, mm-hmm. and people were scared of it. They're still scared of it. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions. <laughs> Related to cancer, there's a lot of misconceptions related to the treatment of it, uh, misunderstandings of how it relates to an organization like Transitions Life Care, where we do hospice and palliative medicine, and we thought the best way to really talk about this candidly and in an educated manner was to bring Shebra Hughes on. Shebra is an, she's an oncology social worker, master's prepared, licensed clinical social worker, has a whole lot of letters after her name, mm-hmm. uh, but also brings a wealth of experience about addressing the unique needs of cancer patients and their families. We like to think of that as a unit. So welcome to the show, Shebra.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: We're glad that you're here this evening. And how did you get into this, Shebra?
3: I think I sort of accidentally fell into uh, the oncology arena. I actually started working until my families and patients that I actually started working with the little babies in the special care nursery. Um, as a case manager, and then eventually transitioned into the oncology arena about five years ago. Um, and then from personal experience, family members that have had uh, cancer diagnosis, uh, I have a passion for healthcare, so this is what I do, um, and I enjoy what I do every day.
2: So in your role at the Duke Cancer Institute, you have a very special role, not all... Um, organizations have the role of a social worker, and I'm a social worker by trade too, so I'm particularly excited about this, that really work very closely with the patients and their families. Could you talk to us a little bit about what you do?
3: I do a lot of everything. I tell people that I'm pretty much the the superwoman of uh, the social work arena. I wear multiple hats, so um, a lot of times my day will involve uh, doing care coordination, and care coordination could be setting up some home health, Um, It could be providing uh, equipment for someone like oxygen, a cane, or a walker. I do a lot of talking, so um, a lot of talking around adjustment of illness issues. Uh, crisis intervention,
1: adjustment of illness issues. Adjustment you know, know we illness. have some. You know, we have a special language in healthcare. We do. The primary <laughs> intention of is to be sure that nobody knows what we're saying. Right. So, what is an ad- ad- adjustment, adjustment of, of, illness. of illness issue? Let's. Well, if I've never uh, had this before, walk uh-huh. me through it.
3: I think adjustment of illness. I would define it as uh, patients coping. How do you cope? Um, and accept your diagnosis. So
2: the um, new reality, this is a, what life's gonna be like now versus what, what it was like yesterday. Right, right,
3: like before. Um, a lot of times you have patients that just once you hear the C word, uh, they're extremely fearful. Um, they don't know what the future looks like. Um, they sort of question uh, their past experience, their work experience, their relationships. Um, so it is a big adjustment and therefore we define it as the adjustment to their illness. Um, a lot of times this cancer diagnosis will impact them financially. So the biggest uh, issue that we sort of run into is, you know, how can I afford my treatment? How can I afford my medication? Uh, Did I select the right insurance plan? Um, Where do we go, you know, from this day forward?
2: Well, you know, I think, and, and you sound like you've had some vast experience in the social work arena. I think this whole idea of adjustment of illness really crosses not just cancer, but really any chronic condition mm-hmm. or sudden change that anybody has in their mm-hmm. status, whether it's a dementia diagnosis, some listening may have loved ones with that, or somebody with a sudden traumatic brain injury mm-hmm. from of an course. accident, or mm-hmm. or even when you were dealing with the little babies in the hospital of when course. someone was expecting to have a baby that was healthy and well mm-hmm. and suddenly not.
3: Of course. Of course.
2: So how do, you, how do we support, just thinking about the families listening today, how do we support loved ones that are trying to adjust to a new illness. What are some of the best ways we can do that?
3: I think um, open communication. Um, From my experience with working with patients and family members, a lot of times no one really wants to talk about their fears, their concerns about, you know, the diagnosis or just about the changes in their situation. So I think a lot of just open communication um, and reaching out for support, whether it be through the oncology social worker like myself, um, I do have family members that I do encourage to call me because they feel like they're so isolated. Uh, reaching out to support groups, you know, to discuss, you know, what you're feeling and to get that validation and normalization of, of what you're dealing with. So it's just a lot of uh, trying to tap into resources, uh, but primarily, if you could, you know, if there's a social worker or a support group or a program that you can tap into, uh, then ideally that would be uh, very beneficial. Uh, for the patient as well as their families. I
2: think that's great, and you know, one of the other things that I was going to say yeah. is, I, I think a, something that people face often, and you all, and I even hear it when, you know, driving around in a parking lot, um, sometimes with people even within the same industry, and you see someone pull into a handicapped spot, mm-hmm. but they look don't look handicapped when right. they come out. Of course. And so of course. I think another thing that people face is when you can't see the illness, mm-hmm. and then everybody around you thinks, "Oh, you're just being you're a baby. You're just fine."
3: Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and yeah. I'm sure
2: that's really hard for a person mm-hmm. to cope with how do you work with people around that issue?
3: Well, I think we we do a lot of just trying to help them to uh, let me back up one of the, the one of the things in terms of dealing with our cancer patients is that the, they have the fear of looking sick and being mm-hmm. sick <laughs> and then you have our patients that are diabetic, um, our patients that are suffering from congestive heart failure we have our patients that may have Um, some type of hematology condition that may not look sick, Mm -hmm. but still they're having a difficult time adjusting to this, you know, this sudden change in the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a lot of hand holding. I do a lot of just, you know, talking with them about their personal fears and concerns about, you know, how people see them or how people identify with them and how they feel so isolated. So just doing a lot of talking, a lot of just providing that additional support that they need in order to be able to move uh, throughout their daily activities um, and throughout their daily lives.
1: So if I'm a patient who just received a diagnosis, and since you work with the Duke Cancer Institute, I just got a cancer Mm -hmm. diagnosis. What's the first thing you think I need to
3: do? Um, Wow, that's a hard question. Scream. <laughs> <laughs> make, but I mean, that makes sense when you talk about there is, there, there yeah. is an emotional component to Yeah, there's an emotional component that a lot of times, I, I think the biggest challenge that I see with my population is that it's it's a fast-moving roller coaster. They don't have time to breathe. They don't have time to think. They just have to – they're. They're pretty much forced to make decisions by the nature of the diagnosis. Diagnosis. You know,
1: now I need to make decisions. Now about I have treatment a, to treatment,
3: and... and I feel like I'm running out of time because there's this stigma associated with cancer as this is this is it. I'm going to be dead tomorrow. This is death. This is my mortality. You know, this is my life. What what's going to happen? And how accurate is that? Um, this, it's not accurate. And so my job as their clinical social workers to sort of back that train up and to allow them to to recognize that. Just because you have cancer doesn't mean that tomorrow is not gonna be here, that you still have a future, that there's, you know, the possibility of survivorship um, and that you need to take your time. Survivorship by me, not my family. Right, survivorship by you, that you can survive this, that our patients are living longer, that we have some very aggressive treatments, uh, very effective treatments that are allowing our patients to live longer lives. And, and healthier lives and productive lives. And I think that uh, people don't see that, which is one of the reasons why we have a lot of survivorship support groups now that we've established so that these individuals can see that, you know, I'm, I'm able to live and there's somebody else that they can, you know, identify with who's surviving.
2: One of the things that I think I've noticed a shift in, and and I'm quite sure that you're still seeing a lot of um, people get the diagnosis and they think, oh my gosh, life is suddenly over. Mm -hmm. But I, I hear a lot of talk and chatter out there not if I'm gonna get cancer, just a matter of when When. and what type. Mm -hmm. Are you, I feel like almost people are psychically making themselves just ready for that diagnosis. Maybe WebMD did this to us, I don't know. And I think what it is, right, and that's what it is. I think
3: WebMD, you have a lot of social media, you have a lot of individuals that are Googling information and the information that's out there, sometimes it's good information, and then you have a lot of bad information. And so, you know, using discretion as you're, you know, searching through social media, as you're Googling this information, is very important um, because it can skew your perception of your diagnosis.
0: Our guest is Shebra Hughes here on Aging Matters, and she is with Duke Cancer Centers. And we're going to continue our discussion on cancer and how that relates to caregiving. You're listening to News Radio 680, WPTF. You're listening to News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, Care and Comfort that Surrounds You. And the show is made possible by Transitions Life Care, which was founded as Hospice of Wake County. And you can always find them online at transitionslifecare.org. Cooper Lynn here representing Transitions Life Care. Nicole Bruno representing transitions guiding lights i am jason kong and our guest today is shebra hughes with duke cancer centers and nicole we were having uh, a little discussion during the break and our discussions during the break are always very lively but we <laughs>
2: wish you could hear those huh? i know
0: we should do a separate podcast and charge people for that i think we'd yeah would be pretty interesting <laughs> But we were getting on the concept of uh, the importance and the role of of the family Mm -hmm. uh, when you're dealing with caregivers and cancer diagnosis, and Mm -hmm. and that – in my opinion, I would think would be a, a really huge factor in terms of support and care.
2: Certainly. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, and I love it when we have social, fellow social workers in the room because it's just like we speak the same language. It's amazing. Great energy level. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I've noticed throughout my career is that when facing chronic ish, issues, there could be a difference in the way different ethnic groups deal with this issue as a family unit. and as a social worker, I know that can sometimes be a challenge in how to speak the same language as that group to make them comfortable with the future. So mm-hmm. how do you work with that at the Duke Cancer Institute?
3: Um, sometimes it can be it can be very challenging. Um, I think it's more so challenging for our physicians, you know, um, because they don't know how to address that issue, but they recognize that there's something, whether it's a person' religious beliefs, social beliefs, um, that's impacting the treatment planning, or that's preventing that patient from making a decision about their treatment, um, or cultural their, paradigm yeah, for cultural care, cultural paradigm. Um, so a lot of times, I, as a clinical social worker, we have to go in and we have to do, we have to ask a lot of hard questions around a person's uh, belief. Uh, around their religion, you know. Um, That's the first thing that I sort of look at as I'm looking at a patient's medical records, you know, where are they geographically located, because I'm from the mountains, you know. Um, I went to East Carolina, and um, there was a big culture difference for me in that the barbecue was different. We had red sauce in our barbecue. They had white salt. You know, no sauce in their barbecue.
1: And wars have been fought
3: over that. Right. Those, and wars have been fought over that. Yeah. Right. But because of that difference, you know that that sort of impacts your perception of the information that you're receiving from that position, and um, and the decisions that you make moving forward. So um, asking people, you know, if you, what, what religious, if you're Muslim, um, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, uh, hmm. if you're Jehovah's Witnesses, because there's certain religious that you can't give certain blood products to, uh, which can impact, you know, treatment. Um, I remember as I worked, um, I think, in a special care nursery, we had, um, I believe, a family that was, um, I believe, African. And one of the things that I noticed is that uh, the Family member, I believe they were standing in the room or sitting on mats in the room. Um, that was their belief. That was how they practiced. And so I had to go in and sort of ask questions about that. How do we support that? I think the physicians had a very difficult time because they had never seen that. But being that we come from, I think we're sort of moving into this era of diversity. We have so many diverse people that are here. Um, healthcare care can no longer be a one note. You know, we've got to be able to accept these individuals for who they are and how they show up. And then we have to be able to somehow address, you know, adjust our treatments. Because it's about their care, it's not the care we have for them, it's their care. It's their care, it's the more personalized, customized care. And I I, I would
2: expect if we enter their world and and try to support them in their beliefs, mm -hmm. we would probably, intuitively at least, I would believe, have better outcomes. Of course. You're you're not stressing that person out to fit into our box.
3: Of course, you're not stressing them out. Um, You see a higher um, improvement of medical compliance once you sort of recognize them support, you know, their beliefs and their perceptions um, about about life in general. So, yes, it does improve the improve overall treatment planning for our patients uh, once we identify those social, religious, and cultural beliefs.
1: And the treatment plans mm-hmm. that I see now being put together for cancer patients in a variety of cancer mm-hmm. illnesses, we use this one word, cancer, but the reality is there are many, many types of Of cancer. It's not one size fits all. And I think back to the cancer treatments that I witnessed within my own family many years ago, Uh, and I look back on it almost like we were practicing medicine in the dark ages. Mm -hmm. You know, we uh, the the, the degree of chemotherapy and radiation that was used um, often killed the patient Mm -hmm. instead of Mm -hmm. the cancer actually Mm -hmm. doing it. And now, the sophistication that is available in the treatment of this oh, yeah. has really taken the word terminal right. off of cancer. Mm-hmm. It, really it doesn't has. mean people don't die of cancer. but right. I mean, at one time in hospice, we treated 90 plus percent of our patients were mm-hmm. cancer patients. Mm-hmm. Now it's around 40%. Which, I mean, it's cut by over, awesome. over half. Mm-hmm. And it's because... The treatment for this is changing, and I'm not sure that families grasp that. And right. it, part of that, they're still living with that paradigm of the old treatment, right. and it drives this fear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: Right now, we have a lot of good uh, therapies that are out there. We have uh, what you call, you probably have seen a lot of commercials about these targeted therapies mm-hmm. that target um, different hormones um, or mutations that are expressed by that cancer. Um, it used to be that. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that they would use these just very general chemotherapy type.
2: Like a broadband antibiotic broad, Right, to just a broadband, everything. treat
3: everything, <laughs> yeah. blow, short, right. Short We're gonna take everything out. Whereas now when you have this targeted therapy, it sort of targets this one particular, um, I guess hormone that's expressed or mutation that's expressed by that particular cancer. So it doesn't go in and doesn't destroy everything. It only destroys that particular, that particular cancer in that particular location.
1: Shebra is, is it a fair thing to say, and I ask this question out of my usual degree mm-hmm. of ignorance, mm-hmm. that cancer should be less scary now than it's ever been? Not, not that it emotionally doesn't deserve to create right. fright, but mm-hmm. the facts of it are mm-hmm. we're able to live with cancer and, right. and beat cancer
3: right, like mm-hmm. never before. I think right now uh, with these targeted therapies, uh, with patients that are living longer, with research that, you know, comprehensive research right now in terms of cancer, um, people should be less fearful. Um, There's a lot of supportive resources now. Um, I think healthcare is evolving on a daily basis. Uh, Treatment is much more customized and it's tailored to meet the patient's needs. Uh, so I think, in terms of taking that fear piece down or out of the scenario, I think people are fearful, but they need to recognize that you shouldn't be as scared in this day and age.
1: And I think that has an impact on caregivers because now we're, we're dealing with a longer expectation of dealing with this illness. Of course, this isn't this short-term tragic piece. It's mm-hmm. really a longer, it's term, long-term chronic. Mm-hmm. And that really can have an impact on
3: families. It can. Because I think a lot of times what happens is that you have patients that go through treatment and um, and they think that once we're done with treatment, it is over. This is it. I don't know how I can close this door. But then they start having these residual issues. Side effects, you know, the chronic illnesses, you know, the chronic, maybe some neuropathy, uh, long-term neuropathy that patients may deal with.
2: Or even once you get that diagnosis and that all clear after uh-huh. five years of no treatment and right. you're not seeing your oncologist anymore. Mm-hmm. I've course. seen Facebook posts after Facebook mm-hmm. posts of friends and family that it's scary to step right. out there in that world without knowing every six months you of got course. a scan to say the that you're clear.
3: Of so, mm-hmm. I mean,
2: I mean does, does your support extend past that time can they access somebody like you? We do.
3: We just like I had mentioned earlier that we have established the survivorship support group because we have those patients that you know that will call me two years out. I just had a patient that called yesterday Mm -hmm. who you know is fearful of the cancer reoccurring. uh, If they get a slight cold you know if it's flu season um, if they're not if they sort of get a temperature at night then they're very fearful that this cancer is going to return. You know, what do I need to do? Mm-hmm. So a lot of times they will call the, uh, the cancer center for that additional support, but then we also have established some survivorship clinics where patients come in at least six months or to a year to get reevaluated, to get re-scanned, just to make sure that everything is still, mm-hmm. you know, looking good with them, that they're not having any uh, ongoing problems.
2: Our
0: guest is Shebra Hughes, and she's with Duke Cancer Centers, and you're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you. If you uh, missed any part of this discussion and you want to go back and if you missed anything that Shebra has said so far, and she said uh, a lot of good things so far. So if you did miss it, please go on to WPTF.com and check out the on-demand section. You can find the full episode there, and if you know anyone who may benefit from the information that we're talking about today, you can go ahead and share this show with them as well. A quick break. Break and back again. You're listening to Aging Matters here on News Radio 680 WPTF. News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Aging Matters, a service of Transitions Life Care. And here supporting Transitions Life Care is Cooper Lynn, Nicole Bruno with uh, Transitions Guiding Lights. I'm Jason Kong. And Cooper, uh, I've learned a lot this show, um, particularly about cancer and a lot of the stigma around it and the improvements that we're seeing in cancer care. But one of the things that uh, I appreciate the most about this show is that we talk about the topics that a lot of people don't want to talk about. They're probably thinking it when they're in a caregiving situation, but they may be afraid to talk about it. And we need to have a conversation about what happens when you have a cancer diagnosis and the hopeful outcome doesn't happen
2: we're just going to get a little deeper now i think on some of these issues mm-hmm. that are probably on people's minds and they just don't want to even dare say to lead into that though you know i've worked with a lot of families sheber where um, families have just not expressed what their wishes are everyone wants to remain in that hopeful i'm going to beat this stage mm-hmm. and they don't even want to have the conversation well what if it doesn't go the way we're hoping. And so then suddenly things they're faced with um, an end-of-life, perhaps, discussion, and and the loved one has to make decisions for a family member that they perhaps were not prepared for. Talk to us a little bit about how you help shape that conversation and really use palliative medicine as a complement to what you're doing.
3: Uh, my role uh, when it comes to that end-of-life planning is um, to facilitate conversation and to pretty much identify what the patient's personal goals are um, in terms of their their long-term care, um, as well as end of life. Um, I actually had a conversation uh, probably about two years ago with my 92 year old grandmother uh, around end of life planning. Um, As the clinical social worker and work with the cancer center, we try to encourage patients to start that discussion as early as possible. as a former case manager, one of the things that I would see in the hospital is that when you didn't have that conversation, there was always a lot of confusion about, you know, what to do, how to do it. Should I, you know, uh, move forward and, and allow them to be put on a ventilator? Um, should I allow them to have the IV, you know, um, fluids or um, the interval, uh feeding tubes uh, towards the end of life because the discussion didn't take place early enough? Um, so to to avoid that, I would encourage individuals and family members to think about having that discussion early. Um, we sit down and we talk at length about the patients, about their goals. Uh, we use that palliative care as an extension, as well as hospice as an extension of our services uh, for the cancer center uh, patients because we want to make sure that these individuals have a good quality of life. Um, my ultimate goal for my patient is to make sure that that they are healthy and that they are satisfied with their decisions and that they have a really good outcome, whether it's with treatment or without treatment, um, which is why we uh, make referrals to Transitions Life Care for that additional support in that matter. I think a lot
1: of folks, pardon me, have the misconception that if they pursue palliative care, that means that they are going to cease Pursuing curative care. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and it's really not the case. It's not
3: uh, the case. Uh-huh. Yeah, with palliative care, a lot of times we use that palliative care um, for symptom management um, or symptom surveillance. So it's almost like we always always describe it, describe it as uh, as doctors making house call. Uh, Patients can still have palliative care, which is symptom surveillance where um, a nurse practitioner may go out to the house periodically to check on the patient just to see how they're doing medically. They may not be able to actively provide treatment in the home, but at least they will serve as the doctor's eyes and ears um, um, to support that patient and provide that family as well as the patients with that reassurance. Family members are very, you know, fearful of not being able to medically manage their loved one uh, that has a chronic illness, and that palliative care provides them with that, that additional support. It sort of takes that stressor off their plate um, in an in-home environment. Um, in terms of the hospice, we, we like to start that, if possible, if we have patients that unfortunately that are just not doing that well uh, with treatment, or um, they're sort of struggling, they're not responding. Uh, the outcome is, is not as, as what they anticipated, uh, then hospice is um, an extension of the service to manage those symptoms um, in home. Uh, we just have those patients that, you know, we, we do have a lot more patients that do not want to pursue treatment, to be perfectly honest. Um, and as a medical provider, we have to support that. And if they don't want the treatment, then a lot of times we'll just have hospice not necessarily as end of life, but as medical management mm-hmm. to make sure that those symptoms are well taken care of in the in home um, environment so that they won't end up uh, going back and forth into the hospital, being readmitted to the hospital um, unnecessarily, you know, so that they won't have to accumulate those additional uh, financial expenses that come with going back and forth to the hospital. So, hospice sort of helps us to, to sort of transition those patients. Um, into the in-home environment uh, with that additional medical support uh, without any unnecessary stressors if possible.
1: And interestingly the studies are coming out now that further uh, confound the misconception that hospice shortens life. The studies are showing that hospice actually if anything is extending life yes, for these patients because they're more comfortable, mm-hmm. they're able to eat, they have better nutrition because of the symptom management, um, and it really is shifting from the idea of hoping for a cure, mm-hmm. for hoping for the best possible experience you can have of with your course. with your family mm-hmm. and the best quality of life, mm-hmm. because if you don't die of cancer. Mm-hmm we will eventually all die from something something, right i mean it's not i'm not trying to be fatalistic Mm -hmm. about it but it's not as if if i if i beat this cancer now i will live forever Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so we have to to nicole's point plan for those discussions around end of life whether it relates to cancer or something else Mm -hmm. and most of us are not prepared for that
3: a lot of times we're not prepared (laughs) unfortunately we're not prepared uh, because it's a hard discussion. No one wants to talk about death and dying. Uh, no one wants to talk about grief and bereavement. Th- those are very difficult conversations to have. Um, it's funny when I had the discussion with my ninety-two-year-old grandmother. The first thing she says is that, uh, "Well, you're you want me? You're expecting me to to die tomorrow?" And of course, I said, "No, that's not the <laughs> case, Grandma. I I just want you to live, but I also want to be well prepared um, because if I don't know." what you want, then I won't know what to do. Um, so it's very important to have those end-of-life discussions, um, you know, about, you know, where the where their financial documents are, uh, where is the advanced directives, who is the healthcare care power of attorney. One of the biggest uh, challenges uh, that we see when our patients and loved ones come into the hospital is that uh, the healthcare care power of attorney lives five hours away and uh, didn't really recognized that their mother or father had declined medically and, um, and presented to the hospital uh, or the clinic and was very confused about, you know, the whole process and the, the outcome. And so we try to encourage family members, as well as our patients, to, to talk with them about that, um, complete those advance directives, uh, designate a healthcare power of attorney that's familiar with your medical care as well as your medical history. Who pretty much is hopefully within close proximity, you know, of that patient, that they're easily accessible. Um,
1: I think sometimes we forget the simple piece. If I can't speak for myself, who can speak for me? Who's <laughs> going to speak for me of and course. know what I want done? And that has to be clearly established. It needs to be documented.
2: And do what you want done, not just know. Follow but, uh, through uh, on so your wishes. wishes. Have <laughs> the
1: through. moxie to do it. Of course. Absolutely. Of
3: course. Uh,
2: You know, Shebra, I'd love to hear a little bit more specifically about actually the Duke Cancer Institute. We haven't taken much time to talk about, you know, specifically what you do and and maybe perhaps what some of the differentiators are and what Mm -hmm. makes you all so special.
3: Well, right now, I think Duke uh, Cancer Institute, I believe we're doing about 60% of the cancer treatments uh, are higher within the Wake County area, so we are really on the forefront of cancer treatment and support uh, for our patients. Uh, Right now, we actually have a cancer center that's located uh, right off the Wake Forest Road, as well as uh, the Macon Pond uh, Cancer Center, as well as um, the Cary location. So we're growing. We're growing in numbers. We have a lot of supportive resources. We have patient navigation. We have dietitians. Um, We have a lot lot of new doctors that uh, we're bringing on board that are providing that specialized treatment for our cancer patients.
0: Very good. Shebra Hughes with Duke Cancer Institute. Shebra, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for today. having me. Uh, again, if you missed any part of our discussion with Shebra today, you can go online to wptf.com and you can go to the on demand section and you'll find the whole program there. You can also find more information about the Duke Cancer Institute at dukehealth.com. Dot org. A quick break and back. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you. A service of Transitions Life Care, founded as Hospice of Wake County, and you can find them online at transitionslifecare.org. Back in just a bit. You're listening to News Radio 680 WPTF. News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, the care and comfort that surrounds you, formerly known as Eye on Health. Name has changed, but the cast remains the same. I'm Jason Kong. Alongside me, as always, Nicole Bruno with Transitions Guiding Lights, Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care. And Cooper, we just wrapped up a discussion with Shebra Hughes from the Duke Cancer Institute, and she... Uh, provided us with some really insightful information and uh, kind of detailed how that process works out. But I guess the next question is, well, how does uh, Transitions Life Care and Transitions Guiding Lights factor into this?
1: Well, I think one of the first pieces that you see patients dealing with, is, as Schieber said, is first the fear. And then the next question is, okay, so what do I do now? And part of that is related to the disease and the treatment. But the treatment happens, you know, at the Duke Cancer Institute or wherever your oncologist is working with you, but you still have to live at home. You still have a family, and those there are caregiver support issues that come up that may be related to mobility. It may be related to uh, making alterations in the home. Uh, it may be a need for uh, legal services or financial services, and people are often overwhelmed and at a loss as to where to go, and they don't realize – that they can actually get help f- finding those resources through Transitions Guiding Lights. Uh, and that's a free service in our community, and it's done by phone. And uh, N- Nicole was, is the founder of that organization. So uh, you deal with these calls and, and your staff deal with these calls on a routine basis, Nicole.
2: We do. And, you know, one of the things I think we need to think about as well is not only is it difficult for the individual, it's difficult for that family and support system around them. But then on top of that, that person is not an island. And there may be a situation where those family members were also caring for someone else in their family and now all of a sudden there's a cancer diagnosis and they still have small children at home and now they still have their elderly parents so a lot of times when people call us it's not even necessarily just about that one particular issue it's just a whole almost hornet's nest of issues going around and we have to figure out which one is the one we have to deal with first plug the hole and then we can get to the uh, the further areas outward well I
1: think we're seeing more and more compounding caregiver issues as we're seeing A population that's aging at this dramatic rate, people living longer, um, dealing with multiple diagnoses or comorbidities, as we like to call them, and you're right. It's not. You may walk into a household and there's two or three caregiver situations happening at one time, Mm -hmm. and it's overwhelming for people.
2: Well, and I think the other thing that's going on, too, is we're starting to see, you know, even online through social media, I'm seeing people who aren't at all involved in this industry posting because movie stars are suddenly saying, I have dementia, I have this, I have that, and people are saying, oh, my goodness, this is an epidemic. So I think now people are really starting to realize, you know, it's not necessarily just going on in their family unit, it's affecting people broadly throughout this country and world.
1: Well, aging and mortality are pretty much broad-based issues. <laughs> you know, it is. That's why we have this show. Is this? It doesn't relate to a small number of people. It's relating to an enormous number of people.
2: Mm-hmm. And the baby boomers are are it's getting older. It's the baby older.
1: boomers, and I was looking at some statistics uh, earlier this week because I was just totally geeking out with a bunch of numbers. But it's, <laughs> Sounds it's like not, you. It is me. <laughs> it's not just the growth rate of the people over age 65. It's really the exploding growth rate of people 75 and older, Mm -hmm. where, to your point, Nicole, the compounding caregiver and clinical issues uh, almost seem like
2: a firestorm. And then the, those of us in the room here, I wouldn't say all three of us are in this range, but the 40 and ups in this room. Uh, I'll, I'll own that one. I will, too. So I guess that means Jason's not.
1: I, I feel it. <laughs> you feel it, especially you, today. You can see it from where you're sitting.
0: Right. But right.
2: it's starting to impact us because now we've got all these 65 and uppers that were in our circles of lives that are starting to face some of these huge issues. And it's it's... But there are, there, there's just not going to be enough hands. It's, it's a big problem.
1: So Transitions Guiding Lights, Transitions Life Care are options to go to both online or to call Transitions mm-hmm. Guiding Lights uh, to do a telephone consultation and get the ball started. But we're also partnering uh, to put on four caregiver summits. Mm-hmm. And people say, what's a caregiver summit? Well, it is an event, a one-day event, designed to bring caregivers together with resources all in one at one time in one community and we hold one of these in raleigh we do one in durham we do one in chapel hill and then we hold one in harnett county mm-hmm. to try and put these events closer to people so that travel's less of an issue mm-hmm. and they're able to walk into a room where there are all sorts of resources both educational mm-hmm and vendors who can actually help them.
2: That's right, yeah. So these are full day, full day events, as, as Cooper was saying. And you know, not only do you have 75 plus vendors at these, you have a whole host of just various different educational topics that uh, really help educate that caregiver out there. And what we try to do every year is really make it broad-based enough so that no matter what your caregiving related issue is, you will be able to find something that will apply to support you. So our emphasis is really on how do you support yourself, how do you support your loved one, the business behind what's going on out there, so how do you get your finances in order, your advanced directives in order, how do you prepare perhaps for Medicaid down the road or estate planning, that sort of thing, Um, and then all the way to, you know, sometimes we do get into specific disease tracks because there are certain diseases out there that seem to create more of a caregiving crisis for a longer amount of time than others, such as Alzheimer's and dementia, so um, these conferences start or summits start um, in June, and then they go all the way through October. And each one has very different uh, educational opportunities available.
0: Yeah, and it seems like it would be such an impactful event because not only do you have all the resources there available in front of you f- across a, a multitude of the spectrum there, but you've also got other people there, and you realize, hey, I'm I'm not alone. That's you know, I'm right. I'm not the only one dealing with this. That's
2: huge. And you know, we we look at. Uh, Cooper's talking about what a number geek He, he is. When it comes to the summits, I'm a number geek too. And we look very closely at our evaluations of our caregivers. And across the board, one of the biggest things people get out of it, obviously they love the education and they want more. They wish they could attend every possible session. But the fact that they sit in the room when we all come together and see five, six hundred other people around them and realize they are not the only ones. And just being able to sit at a table and have a conversation about what's going on or just know that people sitting next to them understand. And you just literally see a weight lift off of the shoulders and people look like they're five inches taller by the end of the day.
1: Well, some of these folks assume that because they're a caregiver and they're taking care of someone, they can't get away to actually go to the caregiver summit. Uh, one, we try and put these out far enough in advance, people can plan mm-hmm. for having some in-home services. But as part of their registration fee, uh, the caregivers, which and we keep that fee very modest, mm-hmm. I think it's was it fifteen dollars this and year, lunch
2: and everything for lunch,
1: parking, everything, the classes. But we include uh, an option to get adult daycare for that day, so that people have an option to care for their loved one and on that same day care for themselves because those two pieces have to go hand in hand. It's not an or, it's an and discussion. Care for the self and care for the loved one. Mm Yeah,
0: that's a, a, a brilliant strategy. And uh, I believe if people want to find out more, they can go to caregivers with an S, Summit. So two S's in there, .org. Is that where mm-hmm. you can find the information Perfect and Jason. register?
2: And I believe you have that up on the station page for us as well. For that's
0: right. Listening. You don't have to remember that. You just remember <laughs> WPTF.com and go to the Aging Matters section and uh, you'll see Cooper and Nicole's lovely face. <laughs> uh, and they, they've banned my image from the website, rightfully so. Oh, uh, not just...
1: that's not fair. But uh, you're a good looking guy. Uh. Well,
0: you're, you're very kind, <laughs> as we can hear from, from the show. But yes, you can find the link there uh, as well as uh, the, the full audio from this show and past shows if you'd like to go back and check those out.
2: So I also know um, we have um, upcoming, uh, we, we partner and help sponsor uh, what's known as an Alzheimer's Dementia Research Symposium, and that's going to be taking place coming up here on March the 6th. Uh, at the Friday Center in Chapel Hill, and that is actually free to attend, and some of the area's top researchers in the area of Alzheimer's and dementia are uh, going to be there, and we can hear what the latest and greatest developments are with that disease, because literally every single day you can read a new study about that, and it's amazing. And that's put on by the Alzheimer's Association, but Transitions Life Care and Transitions Guiding Lights are proud sponsors of that event
1: always happy to sponsor that and and i think we often forget the very difficult journey that dementia caregivers are on uh, of course transitions guiding light stands as an option for those folks as well but this educational program in march is absolutely fabulous uh, i was incredible we were there last year mm-hmm. and you're bringing a uh, world-class research talent to come in and talk to the lay audience and uh, the alzheimer's association should be commended for for what they're doing
0: yeah, you guys do uh, an incredible job. But one thing that I'm learning with this show, and I'm still very new here, is that... Uh, you,
2: you don't get to say that very much longer.
0: Uh, uh, well, I'll <laughs> we'll give him a little Maybe more. another month. Okay.
2: All
0: right. <laughs> I'll, I'll go with whatever you guys say. <laughs> but what I'm learning is you guys, you love abbreviations. You love these, uh, these phrases. <laughs> the acronyms. What, what is the difference between a summit and a
1: symposium?
2: Nothing. How you spell it? <laughs> It's just <laughs> so it's easier to spell and a conference. They're all basically the same. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. everybody
1: coming together to get resources in one place. Yeah. And we wanted to make it as easy as possible for people to find access and obtain care
0: symposium sounds better I'll, I'll say that I it's just uh, can't
1: spell it it's got all
0: those <laughs> I but your
2: symposium actually probably sounds more researchy I would think perhaps perhaps
1: sure. sounds sure. like it's more expensive. maybe we should
2: rebrand and call it the caregiver symposium next year I don't know no, no, <laughs> no. I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding no! I, The looks in the room I'll, if you could only see
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm just pulling both of your chains <laughs> it's fine again if you want to find more information about these events just head on over to WPTF.com and check out the aging matters page and you can find all the the information and links there and past shows as well. Uh, thanks as always to Nicole Bruno with Transitions Guiding Lights, Cooper Lynn with Transitions Life Care, special guest Shebra Hughes with the Duke Cancer Institute. I am Jason Kong and we will catch you the same time next week here with Aging Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF.